Hello and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills Corporate Governance Podcast. My name's Gareth Sykes and I'm delighted to be joined by Maureen Beresford, Head of Corporate Governance at the Financial Reporting Council. Maureen has kindly agreed to discuss some of the key themes and issues coming out of the FRC's review of corporate governance reporting, which it published in November 2020. That was the first review of corporate governance reporting following the introduction of the 2018 edition of the Governance Code, and so the first to consider how companies had approached the range of new corporate behaviours and reporting expectations it contained. The review covers a wide range of topics, including purpose, culture and values, board evaluation, succession planning, stakeholder issues and directors' remuneration. And overall, Maureen, it looks like a key theme coming out of the review is that listed companies could do better when reporting on a number of aspects of the 2018 code. I think it is a fair summary, but I think we should start by stating, you know, the UK does really well in reporting on its governance. You know, we've got some of the highest standards of governance in the world and the code is world renowned as well. So let's just kind of take a step back and remember that we're starting from an excellent place, good reporting all around and lots of reporting, which gives an excellent insight into companies. But as we move forward, we can't rest on our laurels and the code pushes companies to do more as we continue to raise the bar. And in the move to Argo, which we're expecting to do in the next few years, there's likely to be more legislative underpin of reporting and more questions about reporting. So our aim is to try and raise the bar now so that companies are more confident and delivering even better reports going forward. So, yes, you know, we were a little bit disappointed in some areas, but we must remember that we're starting from a a generally good point. Great. Well, that's that's a positive note to start on, on Maureen. I thought what we'd do today is is maybe go through each of the three key areas that were discussed in the report. So they were code compliance leadership, which covered a number of areas, and and then stakeholder engagement. So maybe taking code compliance first, and I have to say I was slightly surprised when I saw in the report that code compliance was perhaps not as clear as it should have been, and that a number of companies were claiming full compliance with the provisions of the code, but then um, couldn't demonstrate that, or, or there was awkward signposting to compliance. Was that also a surprise to you, Maureen? It was a surprise. We do expect companies not to comply with every aspect of the code. That's why it's comply or explain. So we are looking for companies to actually give us good explanations that demonstrate excellent governance. You know, there might be many reasons to do that. And what we were disappointed with is that sub companies appear to be trying to make their own governance fit in with the provisions of the code rather than saying, actually, we've not complied with this provision. We've done something slightly different and set it out in an easy to read, understandable way and offer more transparency to the reader. And we were really quite shocked when we delved into some companies that had claimed full compliance with the code, both principles and the provision, that actually so many had not fully complied. And it's such a shame because it makes you think about the rest of the report and how transparent that's been. So I think my message here is, please, please use the code as it's meant to be used. And the, you know, that explain feature, which is there to enable companies to be a little bit more open about their governance. And yet stakeholders and investors will read that and it will give them the information they need. So it was a little bit of a shock seeing that so many companies 
um, in our sample, just to go to remind you, our sample was 100 companies that claimed full compliance, but actually hadn't achieved full compliance in the reporting that we looked at. Yeah, definitely an example of, of could do better, it, it sounds like. And carrying on with that theme of complier explaining and non-compliance, I remember back when the 2018 code was first published, Maureen, there was a lot of discussion as to whether the levels of non-compliance would would increase because of the, the number of new provisions in the governance code and the number of new behaviours that were expected. And so again, interesting that the report noted that some of the provisions which were most often not complied with were some of those those new provisions. I'm thinking in particular of the provision around pensions alignments, the new provision around the, the chair's tenure, which I think was one that got a lot of discussion when the, when the new code came out. So was that level of, of non-compliance with those provisions expected? I think before we did our monitoring, we were aware of the concerns around chair tenure uh, and alignment with pension contributions. And we recognise that in terms of pension contributions, many different directors might be on slightly different contracts, etc. So it might take a little bit of time to balance out that provision. On chair tenure, again, you know, we do expect that explanation of why a chair may be imposed longer than the nine years. So going back to my earlier response, it's not so much about the non-compliance, it's about the transparency as to why there is non-compliance in these areas or a departure from the code. I think in many cases with the pensions contribution point, if one of the directors had been moved to the same level of contributions as the workforce, then companies were claiming full compliance when you know not all of the directors were on the same terms. So I think it's, it's about looking at the provision in full and complying with all of that provision, not just an element of it. And th there's no shame in that. It's just, again, being transparent. Yeah. And on the chair's tenure, I think we'll pick up on succession planning and the importance of succession planning later on. And I think succession planning was another area that, that perhaps a, a companies could, could look to do a little bit better on in terms of, of reporting. Yeah, just on the, the chair tenure point, um, you know, we found a number of companies that, that said, you know, we've had our chair in place for X number of years. And in their reporting alluded to saying that they'd actually explain this maybe one or two years before. But actually, you know, things change and you know, someone might read the report this year who'd not read it two or three years ago. So it really is necessary to give that explanation again and to go a little bit further than just saying, oh, the chair is staying on uh, and our shareholders agree with that position. Well, the shareholders must have been given a rationale for that and explained why that position was good and, and why that would be successful for the company. So that's what we're looking for in the reporting, more detail around that departure from the code. And the other aspect of, of code compliance that I think has maybe previously not been given quite as much attention, we're all very familiar with, with Complier Explain in terms of the provisions, but reporting on the application of the principles in the code, I think has been slightly left behind. And, and again, interesting that the FCA published a paper on that subject towards the end of 2020 in the context of, of listing rule nine and the requirement to include a statement on how the principles have been applied in a manner that would enable shareholders to evaluate their application. And I know as some of our clients have, have struggled a little bit with reporting 
on the application of the principles and demonstrating the application of the principles. So have you got any tips or guidance that you can give listed companies as to as to how they should be approaching it? I know a lot of our clients are thinking about um, including cross-reference tables, demonstrating where each, each principle is being uh, discussed in the report and the like. But any observations from, from the FRC, Maureen? We did see one or two cross-reference tables last year, and they were helpful. But I wouldn't want to say that that's what every company should do because it, it might be different for each company. I think some of the principles and provisions tie up very well together. So I think if you can build in the provisions and principles together and make a wider statement when you're actually reporting against provision, that's a helpful way of doing it. Or to point to a section maybe within the report rather than a particular paragraph. You know, we could say you talk about leadership in this section and this demonstrates our application of principles in section A, B, one, two, three, or four, or five of the report, something along those lines. And a company might want to pick out one or two key elements to put in their governance statement if they want to be a little bit more transparent upfront in their governance reporting. So I think a table is a good idea, but it's not just the, right, the, the single idea. Think about the connection between the principles and the provisions and where possible, you know, deal with them as a package and alternatively, you know, signposted sections of the report and pull out maybe one or two key elements that demonstrate application of the principles. Does that help? Yeah, very, very helpful. Um, yes, the, the cross-reference table, not, not a means to the end. I think think about reporting holistically is, is, is definitely the message there. I suppose they're moving on from from compliance to the to the leadership section of the of the report then Maureen um, and that picks up on an awful lot of governance issues from from purpose and culture through to directors independence um chairs tenure which we discussed succession planning board diversity remuneration so I'm only going to pick up on on a handful of those issues but I suppose starting with okay. with purpose I did find it quite interesting, again, that the report noted that the quality of purpose statements was somewhat variable when you think that a purpose should be you know, fairly well articulated within an organization. But there seemed to be some inflating of, of purpose statements with marketing slogans, mission statements, vision statements and the like, and a, and a lack of social or shareholder issues being articulated in, in purpose. So uh, I suppose in light of those observations, have you got any guidance for, for the corporate governance teams in terms of how they can maybe get their colleagues more bought into what's required under the, the, the code principles and provisions on, on purpose and move away from perhaps some of the marketing slogans that you've seen? I'm sure it's a tussle within some companies <laughs> between the marketing teams and the governance teams. And, and, you know, the FRC are not the only organization that's talking about culture and purpose out there. There's a lot of thought leadership pieces. There's lots of papers being produced on the importance of purpose. It, you know, it seems to be a little bit of a, a flavor of the time. You know, we thought when we were talking about purpose in the, the code, we thought this would be something that companies would find relatively easy to report on because we assumed that every company would have a kind of a, a founding purpose and maybe that had evolved over the years. But again, as you mentioned, this tussle with, is it a marketing slogan or, or is it something that the whole company gets behind and drives our values and strategy? Seems to, there seems to be a slight disconnect. The slogan that we picked up in our report was enabling your life. And I think if we're thinking about a purpose, 
a phrase like that doesn't really tell you much about the company. And for the stakeholders and the employees in that company, it doesn't really tell you, you know, what that company does, how it's going to achieve its ambitions and its objectives, and how it's going to deliver on any of the things, any business plan or any strategy. And I think if stakeholders can get behind a strong purpose and employees buy into that purpose, then everybody's working together to progress that company forward. So, you know, we suggested that a, a purpose should, you know, explain why a company exists, what the company does, what market it operates in, what it's seeking to achieve, and what the company will do to achieve that purpose. And I think setting that above any marketing slogans it gives that overall direction for the company. And then there might be slightly different marketing slogans that you can pick out of a purpose. So not working against each other, using the purpose to influence slogans and the, the narrative of the company is something that I would try and suggest that governance professionals suggest to their marketing counterparts. You know, we're not against each other working together, but we need something that really makes sense to our employees and stakeholders to get behind and reflect our strategy. And, you know, a marketing slogan may not do that every time and just to think about it. I would also say make sure that your employees understand what the purpose is as well and, and engage with it. We'll talk about stakeholder engagement, I'm sure, in a minute. But, you know, getting them to understand what the purpose of the company is and feedback if that's something that they understand. If your employees don't understand the purpose, then there's little chance that everybody else that you're trying to market to or, or reach will do either. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and you mentioned there, Maureen, strategy and, and values. And another comment that caught my eye in the report was the fact that purpose, values, strategy, notwithstanding that they're all interconnected, tended to be dealt with fairly separately and independently in reporting rather than acknowledging that they all influence each other and are, and are interconnected. And I suppose building on that, I also wanted to then pick up on company culture, which is another key aspect of, uh, of corporate behavior, and in particular around principle B that says that the board should lead on culture, ensuring it's aligned with purpose, values, and strategy. And then provision two discusses the board's role in monitoring and, uh, and assessing culture. And again, back when the, the 2018 code came in, I think a common theme coming out of our discussions with, with various of our listed company clients was that embedding and then monitoring culture throughout an organization can be quite challenging, especially if you operate in, in many different jurisdictions, in many different markets, and culture may not expressly be monitored, although you'll be getting insights from, I suppose, in particular, employee initiatives, employee surveys, or site visits and the like. So I suppose against that background, how do you think companies have done in terms of discussing their culture and then describing what the board's doing to monitor culture? Mm. Well, I think we, we put out a report on early adoption of the code back in um, January of 2020, and we raised some concerns there about how culture was being dealt with in those early adoption reports. I think what was disappointing for us was that we put out our culture report in 2016, which appeared to land really well with some good case studies in there, uh, with support from a lot of FTSE 100 chairs. Um, we thought that that would have kind of moved the debate on somewhat, along with all the other narrative on, on culture and purpose that I mentioned earlier. And what we found in our reviews in November, that the report that we published in November, we found that 
there was some movement on culture. You know, a number of companies, especially the FTSE 100, 102, 250, had actually started to think about a culture dashboard or they'd got some culture pillars. So, you know, they'd, they'd streamlined their, their work into different kind of pillars, how it impacted on different stakeholders, etc. And there was quite a lot of innovation in tiny pockets. But as you mentioned, that there was very little detail on the assessing and monitoring of culture and it tended to be a staff survey or a visit to a site and these these two ways of monitoring culture are very valid but we wanted to make two points about those that they shouldn't be looked at in isolation and the only way of monitoring and assessing culture you you know there are exit interviews there are customer surveys there are all sorts of different ways of monitoring culture and we were a bit worried about the reliance on those two one that a staff surveys you know is only one moment in time it lags behind generally what's going on and we were also a little bit concerned that many companies would say well we got an 80 percent success rate or you know things were generally rosy but there was seldom what the follow-up was for those people that reported that they weren't particularly happy or they didn't support some of the things that the company were doing so we what we were looking for there was a kind of an action plan coming out of the staff surveys and that's where many companies didn't extend their reporting it's i'm sure that companies do this but the reported on the follow-up would have been really good one company did that and explained that you know they had a low i think they had something like 70 percent success rate or, or happiness rating in their staff survey but they looked at the 30 percent and they were worried that it had dropped and they started to talk about what they were going to do and that was really insightful and equally with um site visits it's not clear from the reporting how useful the site visit is um you know quite often directors go to a different site but how much do they actually learn about the culture of that site you know reports site that they talk to employees but is that a structured discussion you know we think it would be beneficial if directors would have a, a more targeted discussion with the employees on particular issues that they could feed back to the board and i'm equally sure that this happens but the reporting doesn't get into any detail on you know did they talk about culture with a particular team, what were the issues, how was that fed back to the board? So it's it's digging down into those kinds of ways of monitoring culture, along with, as you said, trying different ways of monitoring and assessing culture in different markets, in different venues for the company. And, you know, maybe looking to see what others are suggested in terms of monitoring and assessing culture. We're, we are actually gonna try and put something out later this year to help going forward, but there are lots of, other organizations in this space suggesting good ways of monitoring culture so my advice would be to think about different aspects of monitoring and assessing how to get the board to actually discuss culture i know some companies are you know suggesting that when boards discuss lots of issues they have a, you know a reminder how does this impact on culture or stakeholders so that might be one way but it's not in isolation i think it's knitting all the points together to bring that into, as you said earlier, a holistic reporting that demonstrates how companies are dealing with promoting culture, et cetera, et cetera, in their companies. And I think just one other point I'd like to make, it was quite disappointing that a number of companies said, oh, we're, we're thinking about our culture again, we're reinvigorating our culture, 
but didn't explain how they'd worked with the employees to do that. And yes, tone from the top, but tone from the top means that there should be some listening from the bottom as well and some engagement with those employees as well. So it felt like the culture was being impressed upon the workforce rather than agreed with them. So a little bit of kind of what's the company done to kind of invigorate the workforce to get them involved in the culture and to take culture and make it meaningful to the company. Yeah, very, very helpful, Maureen. And I suspect that we'll, we'll pick up on a few of those themes again when we discuss discuss stakeholder reporting and in particular that yeah. two-way dialogue, ensuring that, that it's not just one directional engagement that employee in particular um, comments are, are fed back to the board and, and then the outputs of that are, are sent back down to employees. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to move then on to two or three issues um, impacting the, the nomination committee report. So mm-hmm. we, we touched on succession planning. Um, it also looks at board evaluation and, and diversity issues. So maybe picking up on that succession planning point, principle J in the, in the code, um, I think it's fair to say up the ante on succession planning, seeks to ensure that there's effective succession plans in place, not only for the board, but for senior management and looking for both to support the development of a diverse talent pipeline. But it seems as if succession planning um, and reporting on succession planning isn't quite meeting meeting the bar. It seems like it's fairly boilerplate, focusing on appointment processes rather than being more meaningful. Is, is that fair? I think that's very fair. It almost seems like an afterthought in some reports and maybe you get two or three paragraphs about it in in most reports which is you know it's really important you know as as anybody you know who's on the board or or works in a a large company or even small company to get the right mix of people to get a board that works effectively together and doesn't have gaps on their board you know with only one or two people making decisions so you know succession planning is so so important and the general reporting we get is that you know a boilerplate would be we have processes in place to ensure that we hire people we engage with a recruitment firm or a headhunter and then we do the the kind of last interviews and we promote or we engage someone purely on merit which is very processes and not actually telling you anything about what's important to the company when they're trying to get the right talent to the board and i think this also links to the diversity problem. We would expect to see more reporting that talks about do they have a plan if someone suddenly leaves the board? What switches into place? How do they ensure if there's a gap on the board that there's effective challenge? You know, do they bring in anybody else? Do they ask for additional support from committees, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? How do they ensure that they get a diverse talent pool? We say as you quoted, you know, Principal J, you know, there's lots of things to consider. And of course, companies should promote people or put people into posts on merit. But if you're not getting access to the right talent pool, that's maybe very typical to the people that you've got on the board already, then you're not going to get different skills and different experiences. So it would be good to see a little bit more discussion, perhaps of, you know, blind interviewing, you know, accepting applications or CVs that didn't have a lot of personal information on there to try and ensure that, you know, there weren't any issues around diversity, a little bit more about the succession planning and what happens if things go wrong. As I said, 
how people move throughout the company you know what are the talent pathways for somebody to move up through the company rather than being recruited internally to the board a little bit more discussion about those minority groups that that many companies have which is excellent but does that help them to improve their chances of moving up and being promoted in the company so i think a little bit more about internal promotion external recruitment and how to make a more diverse board with challenge you know what to do in an emergency that kind of thing rather than the few sentences that i gave you a minute ago is what we typically see and there's some helpful guidance in the in the guidance on board effectiveness isn't there around succession yeah. planning and the succession plan should be as you say deal with that you know immediate short-term issue as well as medium and, and longer term and I think the other point in terms of succession planning that I thought was interesting was the linkage to to board evaluation. And actually, it yeah. wasn't necessarily clear that the outcomes of the board evaluation fed through into, into succession plans. And I think that's part of a, a broader theme that, again, similar succession planning, board evaluation reporting also seems to be to be somewhat boilerplate at, at times. Um, and we've and processing, had, yeah. um, ICSA, the, the, the Chartered Governance Institute, publish um, its best practice guidance on board evaluation and a code of conduct for evaluators. So hopefully that will help um, improve the quality mm-hmm. of, of reporting in this area. But is there anything else in terms of board evaluation that you, you wanted to draw out? I think it's really important to set out what the board evaluation is trying to achieve. You know, what is it looking at? Is it looking at the whole board or is it looking at an aspect of the board? And I think sometimes it really is important to say, actually, we're going to look at maybe culture or we're going to look at diversity or, you know, be specific about what, especially if you're employing a third party, what aspect of the board are they going to, to look at? And how that evaluation engage with others, not just the board, because there might be many times that it's worth engaging with, you know, the exco below the board or maybe HR or, or whatever, or the nominations committee, etc. So be a bit clearer about the remit of the evaluation and also about continual development of those members of the board. Going back to site visits, you know, one output of a, an evaluation might be, oh, we need to know more about the employees, so we'll go on site visits. But how does that fit with other development of board members, you know, what are they going to get from the site visit? What is the output that's expected? And to your first point, we quite often see reporting that says the board will consider diversity in the future. And it's not clear whether the suggestion is that the board should be more diverse or the talent pipeline should be more diverse. Now, if it's the first, the board should be diverse, then we'd expect to see a comment in the succession planning section of the report explaining how they're going to achieve a more diverse board what actions are they going to take in terms of succession planning to do that equally they might say we need more information or a board member that's a bit more technically used to dealing with cyber security or now maybe an environmental background and that should link again to succession plans so i think what are the outcomes of the board evaluation and what does that actually mean for the composition of the board and how does that feed through to other areas such as succession planning and training etc and that linkage seems to be missing it seems the reporting seems to be not hanging together or not cohesive yeah 
So moving then on to to the final part of the report then, Maureen, and, and on stakeholders, the 2018 edition of the code incorporated an awful lot in terms of, of stakeholders and stakeholder engagements, various new principles. So I suppose principle A refers to a company's contribution to wider society. Principle D refers to the company's responsibilities to stakeholders and ensuring effective engagement. And of course, then there's provision five, which we'll come on to a little bit later, which sets out um, three possible possible workforce engagement mechanisms. And again, speaking to our clients when the when the 2018 code was first published, a lot of them have, have I suppose, formalized and updated their stakeholder mapping activities. They've reviewed and updated their engagement processes, sought to ensure that, that stakeholder matters are more systematically discussed at board meetings, covered in board papers and the like, uh, and that the board is getting a more um, informed picture of, uh, of stakeholder matters. And it seems as if those activities have had a, a positive impact on on the reporting on on, on stakeholder issues and, and stakeholder engagement. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's been lots of reporting on stakeholder engagement. It's almost as if it's the flavour of the year. Um, and, and I think that the reports that we see this year will also be hugely different from the ones last year because of the impact of the pandemic. I think companies have had to deal more directly with their employees for one and, and think about well-being and mental health and all those kinds of issues and their supply chain issues, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, reporting on stakeholder engagement is only going to improve. I think the areas that we were looking for additional reporting this year was on the, the outcomes of that engagement. And I think, you know, we, we briefly touched on it earlier, but it's what is the board doing or what is the committee doing with all this information that's being gleaned and what difference is it making you know you talked about the information getting to the board and we think that that's what's happening but what's going backwards to the stakeholders is it a proper two-way conversation we're a little bit of concern that in some cases particularly with engagement on maybe community or supply chain it's a one-way dialogue possibly you know with codes of conduct being given to suppliers but no kind of feedback from those suppliers about as to whether that code of conduct is is effective, what impact it's making, how might it be changed, is it reviewed, etc. So that's just one area on environment, those kind of issues, you know, lots of discussion of the environment, but what changes are being made, what is the company going to do differently as a result of the engagement they've had with those stakeholders. You know, there's lots and lots of discussion, but we really want to see a little bit more on outcomes. Maybe a couple of case studies would be useful. We saw one or two of those this year. You know, so how is it making a difference? How is that being fed back, that two-way exchange of information? And how is it impacting on, on strategy? What might a board decide to do differently? What changes might be made? You know, we know that will take a little bit of time to come through because, you know, things don't change overnight. But I, that's what we want people to start thinking about, the impact and the outcomes. Yeah. And one of the other interesting comments um, from the report that, that I picked up on was, was the comment around measuring the effectiveness of, of stakeholder engagements, which, which the report acknowledges that, that can be difficult. So I suspect we're in a similar situation to the monitoring of culture can be, can be a little yeah. bit tricky. But how um, have you any guidance for, for companies as to how they could maybe approach that effectiveness assessment and and how they can then articulate that in their in their reporting. 
I think it's about follow-up in many cases. It's about talking to the stakeholders. And, you know, I've said that, you know, a questionnaire or a survey is not always the right thing to do, but there are a place for those. So maybe sending out a follow-up questionnaire or asking specific questions after uh, an engagement. You know, we saw one report that said an issue for our suppliers is late payments, uh, you know, and, and this was presented in a column with other uh, stakeholder issues. And then the, the next column would be what action was the company going to take? And it was just blank. <laughs> so it didn't actually say what the company was going to do about this issue that it had identified. So it's about trying to get that feedback. So, you know, as I said earlier, maybe a survey, maybe some more dialogue, maybe asking a representative of a stakeholder group in. And then you can, I think on, on our report, I'm, I'm just looking now on page 25 of our report, we did, I think, uh, list some ways that you might be able to better engage with your stakeholders. There was a diagram in there. So we're talking about things like for environment, maybe energy use, stakeholder feedback, level of emissions. You know, if you're moving to kind of net zero, have you set any objectives? What are you going to do there? Employee turnover rate, you know, we're not talking about employees now, but their turnover rate is a good one. What sort of benefits, what your score is on Glassdoor and things like that. This is all information that you can get back into the company. You know, even things like what is Twitter saying about you? You know, it's reputational issues, what are customers saying, are there lots of complaints, etc. And it's trying to find a way of collating all that information and pulling it together and it's a challenge you know I think companies are quite often bombarded with this kind of information but it's you know working out what systems within your organization and what metrics you're going to use to try and harness that information and make it into the actions to change things for the better for all those different stakeholders that you're dealing with. And then I think one particular stakeholder group that we've touched on a few times um, in our conversation is is employees and and the workforce. And I think the, yep. the provision in the in the twenty eighteen code around workforce engagement, if it didn't get the most attention, um, probably <laughs> up there in terms of, of of one of the new provisions that, that got an awful lot of attention. So um, the requirement for um, the, the company to put in place a workforce engagement mechanism. Three were suggested in the, the or are suggested in the code. Uh, a director appointed from the from the workforce, which I think it's fair to say, few companies have taken up that option. Minimal. <laughs> Second option of a, a formal workforce advisory panel has been maybe a bit more popular. Uh, the designated non-executive director, I think, is by far the most popular route. And then quite a lot of companies have either done a, a mixture of those um, or have um, explained why their um, alternative engagement methods are effective. So uh, in terms of compliance with, with, with that provision and, uh, and the reporting on, on workforce engagement mechanisms, um, what, what are the key points that, that companies should really be considering in, in, in terms of workforce engagement? Yeah, I'd like to say that there really are four options. And, you know, that the alternative approach isn't a kind of an add-on. You know, we recognize that many companies have been doing good engagement uh, with their employees, you know, over many years, and their engagement doesn't actually fit into one of the three. So, you know, we really want them to report on that and to explain why it's effective and what is the benefit of that alternative approach. So, it's not like the, um, the add-on, it should be used. 
but more generally, what we're wanting to see is, again, like wider stakeholders, it's the outcome of these engagements, whether you've used a NED or you've used an advisory group or something different. What difference is that making? And why was that mechanism chosen? Why is it a good thing to do it this way? And actually, some anecdotal information and some work that we've been doing with an external provider suggests that actually the best approach is probably a NED working with an advisory group. So we will be putting some more information out on that this year, but maybe that's something that companies should think about because then the NED does actually have that access to, you know, the employees in an advisory group setting. So, you know, as a way of hearing firsthand what the issues are and feeding back to that group. And I think that is the issue that I wanted to raise. It's the outputs, it's the feeding back on the decisions that have been made by the board, if there were some decisions that were sent to the board as a result of the engagement. And we absolutely recognise that not every issue will need to be sent up to the board for a decision. Uh, you know, it's a way of understanding wider issues and sometimes there will be issues that get sent to the board sometimes there'll be issues that get sent to the board that have no action don't change anything but that will need to be fed back why was that the case but at least that's when the employees are feeling that they're being listened to even if they don't get the outcome that they want there are other times where they might send some views up and there is a change or you know something happens so what we're looking for is a little bit more on the outcomes of the engagement and a little bit more in the reporting of why the engagement choice chosen is effective. Something that we felt was lacking this year was for those companies that had appointed a NED, why did they choose the NED? And why did they choose that particular person? You know, perhaps they had a background in employee relations or they'd done some work with employees before, but there was very little discussion of why that was appropriate for the company and what extra value that individual bring to the discussions. And we were also a little bit disappointed that the role of the NED didn't seem to be defined anywhere. Companies hadn't set out what that role was. It, it felt in the reporting as though the director was kind of left to carve out that role for themselves. And we felt that it would be helpful if companies had given a little bit more thought to the role and what it was to achieve. And then the reporting on the effectiveness of that role may have been a little bit easier. I suppose much like you wouldn't expect the, the audit or the remuneration committee or the nomination committee to operate without terms of reference and, and a roadmap Absolutely. of what they're meant to be doing, much is the same for the designated NED. And I suppose to very crudely sum up your points on stakeholder reporting, Maureen, it sounds as if there needs to be a little bit more focus on the, the so what, you know, what... what Absolutely. And then I suppose just to wrap up on, on corporate reporting then, Maureen, you alluded to um, the fact that it's a period of change for the for the FRC. There's the process of transitioning to the audit regulation and governance authority. You also alluded to the fact that stakeholder matters and stakeholder engagement are very much at front of mind um, at present. So I suppose having looked back at reporting last year, looking forward, what should companies be expecting in terms of corporate governance reporting and the, the FRC or ARGA's role going forward? Well, I think um, as we speak now, I think a, a consultation may be coming out in, in, in the next few weeks, hopefully, on the future of ARGA and what we'll be doing, where there'll be additional legislation, where the code may change going forward. 
so you know I would advise you and anyone listening to this that's interested to really look at that consultation when it actually is published think about what it means for your company and how it may impact on governance or on the board or audit matters etc and please respond to that because you know I think it's important that companies have a stake in the decisions that are made and the consultation process is a way of doing that so you know we will once the consultation is published be holding round tables and doing events so my plea is to get involved in that and that will be you know a few years down the line before there are any changes but you know this is an opportunity in the nearer term you know we're still working on governance as you'd expect we'll probably do another review next year covering some of the same issues maybe some slightly different ones we'll probably pay a little bit more attention this time to the principles and we'll also be looking for good examples and good explanations of any non-compliance or departure from the provisions and we really don't want to be seeing you know companies saying that they've complied with everything and then finding out that actually they didn't I think that's something that can be easily rectified with a little bit more clarity and transparency we're also during the year going to be putting out some thought leadership pieces on culture and assessing culture and we'll do a report on workforce engagement and on diversity in the boardroom so you know that might help the companies that are listening to this to think about things for their sort of next 18 months to two years down the line so we keep trying to help and to give guidance and, and support to companies. And that's what we were trying to do with our report. It wasn't a case of saying everything's terrible. It was an attempt to try and raise the bar and to draw issues to people's attention so that things can improve and, and reporting can improve going forwards because there is such a lot of interest in, in governance and, and company reporting, much more beyond investors. As we all know, it's a much you know, many more people are looking at company reports and narrative reporting for a view on how a company's being driven forward and whether it's going to be successful or are there are potential pitfalls down the line. So, you know, we will be trying to help, support and offer guidance. And so I hope that anybody listening to this will, you know, take it in the spirits that it's delivered and, and just try and raise the bar a little from a high bar as i said at the start <laughs> Indeed. it's a high bar but the, as ever always room for room for improvement where well, it sounds as if you've got a exactly. 2021 ahead of you maureen <laughs> but there was just one other point that i wanted to pick up on before we wrap up and i suppose as we speak a lot of listed companies especially those with the 31 december year ends will be thinking about their their annual general meeting in in 2021 and against the backdrop of I think the most um, unusual AGM season ever in, in, in 2020. The FRC published its report, um, AGM's an opportunity for change back in October 2020. And the appendix to that report gave um, some very useful pointers in terms of planning for the 2021 AGM. But I suppose against the backdrop of the corporate insolvency and, and Governance Act relaxations in relation to shareholder meetings, not being likely to being extended beyond the their current 30 March end date. Uh, have you any advice for companies approaching planning their AGMs in in, in April, May, and, and June this year? Yeah, I think I think as you said, it, it's not looking hopeful for for changing the legislation again. Unfortunately, I think work very closely with your uh, registrar 
is one of the key takeaways that I'd like to suggest. But think about your retail shareholders. You know, there are many different ways of engaging with them. Doesn't always have to be on the exact day of that, that AGM. It could be before. Maybe you could put out some questions, you know, in advance, any questions that you're asked before the AGM, put them on your website and maybe the answers on the website so that the retail shareholders feel a little bit more engaged. Absolutely make it as clear as you possibly can what the voting rules are going to be, whether it's going to be via proxy or if there's any alternative, is there a way of voting on the day? Are you using some whizzy equipment potentially? So I think it's communication would be the main thing. And don't just think about what happens on the day. I think a lot of good uh, and a lot of discussion with retail shareholders can happen in advance. And, And what they're asking for is the information to make their voting decisions on. Institutional investors get those, you know, weeks and weeks in advance and maybe a half day or a day uh, of a webinar or something prior to that AGM might be beneficial. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that companies were, well, thinking about it this time last year, COVID-19 wasn't really something that we were focusing on in in the UK and it, it came um, very quickly that we were. So I think a lot of companies in, in March, April and, and May last year uh, were given the benefit of the doubt in terms of having to react at quite high speed to the to the changing circumstances. Yeah. Whereas I think, yeah. you know, that there has been the opportunity to, to plan and prepare for the AGM this year. So I think expectations are a little bit higher this year. It was tough last year, you know, everything was a last minute. So yeah, we, we're hopeful that again, in a difficult situation, you know, companies you know, we'll get through and do the best that they can uh, and learn from last year. Great. Well, Maureen, thank you ever so much for your time. That's been um, incredibly helpful and and, and interesting for me and and hopefully for for all of those corporates um, thinking about their corporate reporting and their, their AGMs. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you.